Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 29. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're having a focused conversation around ransomware with co-founder and managing principal of Soteria Security Solutions and Advisory, Paul Imey. Thanks for joining us on the show today, Paul. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, to get things started, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us about what your company does? Yeah, so uh, I'm Paul Imey. I'm a co-founder at Soteria. We do a lot of cybersecurity advisory work and, and consulting services. So uh, we started out, funny enough, trying to do incident response. And then we realized that nobody calls you for an incident when when they don't know who you are. So we pivoted to more proactive security services. So we do a lot of offensive security, penetration testing, security advisory work. And then around 2018, uh, we started offering a lot of managed detection and response and getting back into the incident response game. So that's really my focus nowadays is leading our teams that are running our managed detection and incident response practices, as well as our engineering team that's building software to support those uh, those workloads. How long have you been working in cybersecurity and how did you get your start? It's sort of hard to say. I started my career in the Air Force as a computer programmer and just kind of slowly made the transition into cybersecurity from there. So probably since 2006, 2007 or so, that's when I started really digging into cybersecurity. And, you know, it started fairly simple. I'm helping the Air Force evaluate cybersecurity products for their procurement efforts. You know, testing McAfee um, and and semantic antivirus against like different threats and, and things like that that we were seeing. And then uh, eventually moved over to the National Security Agency to do some of the intelligence community work, which was really cool. And uh, after doing that for a number of years, I I got out and tried my hand at the private sector. So did some work with the Internal Revenue Service, J.P. Morgan, and then in 2015 came down here to Charleston, South Carolina and helped get Soteri off the ground. The Air Force seems to be a pretty common path into cybersecurity that I encounter all of the time. Was it a good experience for you? And do you recommend it to people trying to find their way? Yeah, I think it's great. The The military and the government in general, they're so good at training, right? They're so good at taking somebody straight out of high school and giving them a, a valuable skill set in whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's cybersecurity or, or being a diesel mechanic or avionics technician or whatever it may be. So it's it's pretty amazing looking back at it, how quickly they take somebody out of high school with zero technical background like I had, train them up to be good enough to be useful, and then just shove them into a situation where they have to learn more quickly and, and then support that. So nobody's ever going to spend more to train people than than the government. And I think it's it was massively valuable. And I look, I didn't retire. I was really happy to get out when I was because I had enough of it. I'm not a lifer, but I think it was one of the better decisions I've ever made. And, and they did a lot to uh, to help me figure out what I wanted to do in life because I don't think that this is where I would have wound up if I would have been left to my own devices to uh, to kind of find a path. Oh, that's great to hear. Uh, a lot of your early experience was on the offensive side of house. How is that translated into your abilities as a blue team defender? I think it comes in handy a lot because it, it helps me sort of understand the mindset of the person on the other side of the keyboard, right? When I'm trying to do an incident response um, engagement and trying to put together a timeline of what's happening, I think it it's advantageous to be able to understand what the what the threat actor that you're investigating was trying to accomplish and kind of understanding their mindset and their objectives and how they think, right? It's it's interesting to be able to see, you know, somebody making a typo on a command over and over and, and you kind of know that they've got that 
you know, that window on the other side where they're copying and pasting their commands and they forgot to change their templates or, or whatever it may be. And also just kind of putting you in, into that mindset and understanding here's why they did this and here's probably what they would go and do next or something along those lines, right? So it's hard to uh, to quantify it. Certainly, it's helpful because having done a lot of the same things, you can see it and very easily recognize what's you know legitimate versus uh, suspicious because you've done some of the the same things of using the same techniques to try to hide your activities and such. But I think that's really it more than anything is just understanding the mindset and, and kind of being able to really empathize with what the threat actors are trying to do to try to predict their next move or understand why they may have done something that isn't always all that obvious. Yeah, it makes sense. The reason I asked you on the show today is because I wanted to do a deep dive on ransomware. And I know you have a lot of experience with this. So I'm hoping we can talk about some modern tactics and detection techniques. But before we get into that, I wanted to quickly run through some of the history. So from my research, I can see the first variants of modern ransomware started showing up around 2005, but it was almost non-existent. It wasn't until around 2010 with the emergence of cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin when the game really started to change. Now that bad actors could collect payment in a way where they could stay anonymous, things started to evolve. You were still in cyber war operations at the Air Force at this point. Do you remember seeing this start to pop up or did it take a few more years to kind of be at the forefront of people's attention? Yeah, no, I really wasn't paying any attention to any of this. I was, I was so focused on on my mission and and the targets that I was going after that looking at a uh, you know what was happening in the commercial space was was not really even on my radar. So it's it's kind of funny. Uh, I probably first started paying attention to this when when I started working more in security operations and on that blue team side of the house and and kind of realized that this was you know becoming a thing. But I think even then it was still very sort of consumer targeted and still very much in that, you know, a threat actor lands on a box and kicks off a, an encryptor for that system. And, and that's the end of it versus more of the sort of enterprise wide type of ransomware attacks you see today. And then in 2013, it was a crypto locker appeared, which not only harnessed Bitcoin as a payment method, but also used a command and control server. Uh, the victims were able to unlock their data for the tidy sum of 300 bucks. It was widely deployed, and threat actors used the Game Over Zeus banking trojan along with a botnet to spread it far and wide. I'm guessing you probably didn't notice this either. No, I was still working in government spaces, and and I wasn't. I do remember reading some blog posts about it and everything. Just you know, um, reading uh, you know forums. I think I read a lot of Slash Dot and, and stuff like that back at the time. So uh, I would totally see it popping up in, in those spaces, but it wasn't something that I had. I had a ton of visibility into, and I certainly didn't didn't anticipate it would become what it is today and, and didn't realize that this was really the start of something, you know, way, way bigger. Right. Yeah, up until this point, bad actors were just kind of doing a spray and pray and victimizing as many random endpoints as they could. With the ransom being so small, a good percentage of people were likely to pay it to get back important documents or what have you. It's good to remember that this was really just at the beginning of the widespread move to the cloud, so most people didn't have their photos and stuff backed up with a cloud service. The issue for threat actors was that the ceiling wasn't much higher for normal people, so they, they couldn't extract much more money than that. There was a limit to what people would be willing to pay. As ransomware continued to evolve, the distribution started to hit scale and affect a lot more victims. We started to see healthcare, trade, infrastructure... It wasn't just something that happened to people that clicked on the wrong links or were hanging out in shady parts of the internet. Do you remember the first big ransomware event that made you realize things were changing or or maybe put it on your radar for the first time in a real way? 
I don't remember the first big one, but I do remember I do remember clients starting to call us in sort of the early days of Soteria and us trying to think about how we're going to help them and and do we want to, you know, start setting up some sort of infrastructure to be able to hold on to some Bitcoin to help help victims pay the ransom if they chose to do so and trying to think about what this practice was going to look like at our firm and, and how we would actually go about dealing with these types of threats. So, you know, I think around that time you started seeing these things pop up in the news and it, it started becoming more well-known. Obviously, the WannaCry incident was largely attributed to ransomware for a while, but nobody was actually getting any sort of decryption keys from that. But I think that was to the non uh, sort of cybersecurity focused public. That was really the first big one that that created a lot of awareness for folks that I was talking to, right? Because, you know, I think before that, people would still, uh, even some CISOs, right? Some CISOs and CIOs, you would talk to them about ransomware and they'd say, what's that? You know, they, they didn't really understand what it was. And and it's kind of funny because, you know, WannaCry was more of a destructive worm that was disguised as ransomware, but it wasn't really ransomware per se. But that was, I think, one of the big ones that made people start realizing what that threat was and, and that it was something that they needed to, to pay attention to. Yeah, if I remember correctly, WannaCry was the infection method was a leaked NSA tool. And then they just kind of ham-fisted this encryption software into there and, and made this really fast traveling destructive piece of software, right? Yeah, it was like the last, uh, you know, great worm, right? Great. <laughs> yeah. um, so in 2008, CrowdStrike coined the term big game hunting, which I think is where the fight is today. You know, bad actors are using highly sophisticated and targeted campaigns to get inside of organizations, lay well-crafted traps, and then extort them for as much money as possible. Does this match with your experience or is a lot of what we're seeing still simply opportunistic or is it a combination of both? I think it's a combination of both. I think that the ecosystem has uh, has really sort of broken down into those actors who go and gain access. And I think that largely they're opportunistic. They're out there, not unlike what you see a lot of bug bounty hunters and that they, they will try to find a way to operationalize some bug or some vulnerability and, and you know, be able to exploit it in mass. And, you know, with a bug bounty hunter, then you go and find all the organizations that have a bounty program that might be vulnerable. And then you go and, and claim those. And it's sort of a similar thing that these initial access brokers are doing where, hey, I've, I've got this great exploit for Fortinet firewalls or whatever. So let me go scan the Internet or use Shodan or, or whatever it may be to find all the potential victims, you know, go gain access and then get a hold of them. And then there's, you know, there's other crews who are, you know, within that saying, OK, we only want to target, you know, the big game, so to speak, using CrowdStrike's term. We only want to go after those organizations who are going to be able to pay big ransoms and they, you know, it's, it's hard to say specifically, I'm not a threat Intel guy, but it's, it's hard to say specifically if those guys are also going after that initial access piece or if they, uh, or if they're buying, you know, select access from uh, some of these initial access brokers. But, but certainly, you know, from, from my vantage point, it, it seems a lot more opportunistic uh, more than anything of, you know, where can we get in and, and what's the best chance of us making a buck? Out of, uh, out of this access. From what I understand, a ransomware attack can be broken down into stages. What does the initial stage look like, and does this vary depending on the sophistication of the threat actors? Yeah, it does. And this is sort of a, a soapbox that I've gotten onto a handful of times. And you'll hear a lot of uh, 
a lot of vendors and, and a lot of folks who are tangentially aware of all these things telling you that, you know, it only takes minutes for ransomware to, to cripple your network and those types of things. It's true, right? If if somebody executes ransomware, it can cripple your environment and encrypt everything very quickly. But I think those things don't really take into account the entire life cycle of the attack. And and that's something that's really important. So to answer your question, what is a what does an attack look like? It it's usually some variation of, you know, first there's initial access. So maybe that's a phishing email, you know, with, with some sort of attachment that drops a, a backdoor beacon on your system. Or maybe it's uh, something on your border, you know, your your firewall or VPNs or, you know, leak credentials or, or whatever it may be, right? Exposed RDP servers are always a, a fan favorite. And, uh, you know, a threat actor gets in. And then once they get in, you know, their objective is almost always with ransomware crews to go get domain admin somehow. I've certainly seen some folks just land with domain admin on on some of these exposed RDP servers and things like that. But usually they're going to go and try to dump credentials somehow. And that can be in a bunch of different ways. That can be using Mimikatz. That can be using something like ProcDump or, you know, any other sort of tools that can dump memory of the LSAS process. It can be, you know, whatever uh, whatever technique the, the threat actor chooses to, but they're going to go try to dump creds. And then they're going to go and, and scan they're going to go scan your network to try to map it out and figure out, you know, where's all the stuff that I can encrypt. Uh, they're going to go poking around and trying to find interesting files for extortion because, you know, ransomware these days isn't just about encryption. They're also sealing a bunch of data and trying to use that to extort you as well, saying we're going to make this public if, if you don't give us some money, right? Because they found that that increases their odds of, of folks paying. So then they're going to go find that data and then they're going to go zip it up in some way, shape, or form, they're going to go exfil it to to mega upload or to some SFTP server or whatever uh, whatever piece of infrastructure they have, and then they're going to stage their encryptor and then they're going to run it. And so there's all these different steps that happen, right? And this can this can take anywhere from an hour, right? There are some threat actors who move like incredibly fast and just want to get in and drop this, but sometimes it's weeks or months, right? Sometimes that initial access is is captured and then that access is then sold to another actor who who goes and does the other steps, right? So all of these things happen and it's not, you know, just happening, you know, in the blink of an eye, so to speak, right? These things happen and they're all creating noise or creating opportunities for a defender to catch them doing these types of things and get them out of the network and stop the attack before it happens, right? So this notion that, you know, ransomware is the issue and it, it's kind of funny because I was talking about this over a year ago with a guy named Adrian Sanabria, who's who's a really brilliant guy, and he just put out a blog post that, that talks about this, where you know the ransomware piece, the actual piece of software that's encrypting everything and, and rendering your files unusable, that's that's the last phase of of this attack, and it's kind of irrelevant because if you know that's really just telling you that you've been breached and a whole lot of bad stuff has already happened to you, and that's uh, in many cases just the the threat actors notifying you now that you've been breached. But so much has, has already happened in, in these environments. By the time that happens, the actual ransomware payload is is sort of the end of the story, not the beginning. So you'd mentioned scanning your network. So would building detections to find this early access be stuff like, you know, looking for Nmap and like what kind of things, if I was going to write some detections for my organization, what are some like clear signs that somebody's staging this kind of thing? Yeah, there, there's a lot. And 
and uh, there's no way I could cover them, but, but at each, each of the stages that I talked about, um, you can, you can do some things, right? So the initial access piece, you know, you can look for, for opportunities to detect that, but let's just assume that, that all of that is, has failed, right? And for some reason, you're not able to detect, you know, one note launching executables, or you're not able to, to detect, you know, people opening ISO files and then running, you know, malicious links and stuff like that. So there's that initial initial access piece, but ignoring that, yeah, once they get in, credential dumping is pretty commoditized, and you can go out and read red team blogs and see how people are dumping credentials on any systems and put in detectors for that, and really kind of boils down to accessing LSAS in a strange way. And you can do signature-based detections for things like uh, Mimikatz, right, because it's very, it's very well documented how all of that works, but then you can also put in uh, detection capabilities for your normal task manager dumping LSS because that's very predictable in, in how it works or proc dump dumping LSS and, you know, rename versions of proc dump. So, you know, a threat actor brings down proc dump, but they change the name because they think that, you know, it's not going to be seen that way. So, uh, and it's not usually, so they're, they're very successful with this, but anyway, looking, looking for all these credential dumping techniques, there's, uh, there's a ton of them out there and, there's uh, it's very well documented how to how to detect those types of things. Seeing the uh, the network scanning tools, they, they use a lot of commercial off the shelf types of things that aren't going to be flagged by your antivirus solutions. But looking for things like advanced IP scanner, net scan, or or whatever it may be that they're using for that that may or may not be valid in your network. You know these are valid tools, but if you're not using them or if you're only using them in certain ways, then then putting in detections for those. Another big one that they've used a lot for remote access is just installing other legitimate tools like TeamViewer and AnyDesk, right? So if you're not a shop that uses those, then maybe put in some detections for those those types of capabilities. And, you know, worst case scenario, you might catch somebody doing some shadow IT, right, that, that is running software that they're not supposed to be running in the first place. Same thing with, you know, the data exfil piece. If, if you, you know, if you see somebody connecting from your corporate network to mega upload, or, you know, to random SFTP servers out there, then that's a good thing to look for. And these things aren't, you know, in any enterprise of, of a decent size, you can say that that's not easily detectable from us because we have all these legitimate use cases for, you know, for this or for that. But certainly somewhere in this attack chain, you know, you can find some things that, that nobody should be doing ever, or that you can at least profile to a very small um, like well-defined segment of your network or subset of users or subset of machines um, that are going to be doing this and really try to hone in on, okay, we're going to, you know, ignoring this, we're going to, we're going to know if anybody uploads anything to mega upload. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And yeah. We want to see those, those DNS requests or, or whatever it may be. And you can do it at the endpoint level, the network level or, or whatever it may be. And then obviously um, you can put in, Detections for the actual ransomware execution. Um, and again, you've already kind of lost at that point if you're getting there, but it's not, you know, it's better than nothing if you can stop them from from actually doing the encryption by, you know, looking for deletion of volume shadow copies and turning off volume shadow service and, and things like that. And there's also, I'll say that the other one that I failed to mention, and I don't know why, but they also really love to go around turning off security products. So if you start seeing all your security products going dark, that's a great sign too, right? <laughs> so yeah. If you see Defender or whatever it is that you're using um, starting to, to be turned off everywhere, then that's a, a good indication that you've got something that you need to take care of. I'm assuming the answer is yes, but for a company that has good security coverage, is it still worthwhile building in an automated backup system to restore in case something like this happens? 
Yeah, I, I think you have to now. I don't, I don't think you can get insurance, you know, if, if you're not doing these things and you're you're really kind of negligent if you don't have some manner of backup in place. The thing that I always emphasize, though, is, is again, that like, you know, recovering your backups is one thing, right? You want to keep your business operating, but that's not the only thing that you have to worry about. And I think there's still a lot of people who who really laser focus on that encryption piece and just forget about the, the data exfiltration piece and all the pain that's going to come with that. Because if you have your backups and you can actually, you know, and you've done a good job of testing them and you know how to recover from your backups in a, in a reasonable amount of time, which that's another whole thing where we've seen tons of cases where organizations have great backups, but they have no way of actually recovering from those backups in a reasonable amount of time. So you have to consider that too. But that doesn't solve for the, the data exfiltration problem, right? You've got great backups, but now you still got to make the decision of, you know, now they've got all of our employees, W-2s and, and social security numbers and all this kind of stuff. And they've got all of our customers info and all of our intellectual property. And, you know, your backups aren't going to prevent those from being published to some ransomware actors, you know, brag site. Mm-hmm. So I guess, does it ever make sense to pay the ransom? Do you ever recommend that if people get hit? I never want anybody to pay it, right? I'm strongly in the never negotiate with terrorist camp. But if I'm an organization and the question is, do I pay this ransom or do I shut down my business and, and fire all of my staff? You know, I think that there are situations where it never feels good and I never want anybody to give a dime to, to criminals who are causing all this uh, havoc. But I think that there are there are situations that I've I've seen people pay it where I'm like, yeah, I probably would have done the same thing in your shoes had I found myself in a similar situation. So I think it's a, a last resort type of thing. Again, I, I'd never want to see a dime go to um, any of these people because at the end of the day, you're funding more crime, right? You're encouraging this and you're, I think that's a big part of, of what got us here is that so many people were paying these ransoms as these ransomware crews are more well-funded than, than a lot of tech companies, right? With the amount of money that's been flowing into them. So always discourage it, but I'm not an, an absolutist on anything. In those situations where it does kind of seem like the most logical thing to pay the ransom, do we see a high rate of success in getting the data unencrypted and not having to get blackmailed or have our data leaked? Because they're criminals, they've already proven that they don't have good morals. Are they honorable in the sense that if you pay them, they do what they say they're going to do? Yeah, some are better than others. And I think it's funny, the, the decryptors never work as efficiently as the encryptors is, is one thing that I felt. <laughs> so if they, if they encrypt your network in a matter of minutes, they'll decrypt it in a matter of weeks, it seems. But uh, it's not like they've got a big support team and they're not, they don't have a customer success team and they're not going to give you your money back if it fails, right? They're not going to help you out. So we've seen cases where it's worked great. We've seen cases where the decryptors just don't work at all. We've seen issues where it mostly works, but you know, if you've got a you know some database somewhere that got encrypted that's like very heavy write, uh, like a whole lot of writes to it, then that data just kind of gets corrupted during that encryption process. And it's not really built to uh, to be able to recover from that. So that data is still gone. So I, I've seen it all. And there's a, you know, you can talk to folks who specialize and, and can break it down by threat actor group of like, you know, we have a 88% chance of success with this threat actor group and a 2% uh, success rate with, with this threat actor group. So don't even bother kind of thing. So it, it does vary. It's kind of funny because they, in my experience with this, they've, they kind of focus on trying to, to provide good customer service. Cause in a way that this, this is a business for them, it's a very illegitimate business, but they want the, the quote unquote good ones 
want to be known and they want to have a good reputation of, of their decryption tools working because they want more people to pay the ransom. And they understand that there is a, an ecosystem of people like us who, you know, see trends and, and will be able to advise our customers on how good of a chance they have of recovering their data. So I think it's gotten much better than the early days of ransomware, but it's still, you know, buyer beware. Yeah. And I've heard of there's actually uh, people brought in as ransomware negotiators. Is there any success in moving the needle on the amount that it costs to get your data back if you bring in somebody who negotiates? Is there something to be done there? Yeah. I mean, they're always, you know, it's like any other negotiation. They always start with a with an absurd number, but they understand that some money is better than no money. So there's always an opportunity for negotiation when dealing in any kind of financial transaction, right? Um, and I think the the other the big argument for using a negotiator is to to make sure that you're not getting yourself in trouble by sending money to somebody who's on the sanctions list and, and getting yourself um, in trouble with the government and and those types of things. So I think there is value to to having a professional negotiate if you do find yourself in a in a ransomware situation. Yeah, you know, it never feels good, but if nothing else, they kind of understand. And I think a lot of these, um, a lot of these crews have gotten wise to like the professional negotiators and have gotten okay-ish at understanding when they're talking to a professional negotiator versus an actual victim. But uh, I think it's you know if you're going to be doing this, it's better to have somebody who knows what they're doing than kind of go in there and, and figure it out yourself. Right. Is there anything we failed to cover in this conversation about ransomware that you think people should be aware of? Uh, I think that the big thing that I try to focus on with people is ransomware has, has become the term, but it's more of a class of attacks that are happening nowadays. And it's really a life cycle of things. And, and ransomware, um, again, Adrian Sanabria's blog post, and I can share a link with you to include in this, but I think it's a really great read. And he does a good job of of summarizing this point. But you know, we we still call it ransomware and we still call them ransomware actors, but they're really extortion actors. So there's not, you know, the ransom, the the encryption of files, the, you know, the crypto locker piece that everybody thinks about is really the the final act in, in a multi-act um, production, right? And and there's, it's not a hopeless cause. These, uh, these tactics and the techniques that they're using are very well documented. Uh, they're not all that advanced. I would say that one of the things that Adrian said that I thought was uh, really poignant is, you know, they're taking the playbook from pen testers and applying it to to their attacks. So if you've if you've had any qualified, you know, penetration testing firm, you know, come attack your organization, they can really easily replicate exactly what a ransomware threat actor is going to do. So if you can defend against that, you can probably defend against ransomware. So making sure that you have those controls in place and that you know, you have not only the detection capabilities, but the ability to respond and evict a threat actor out of your environment when you see them. That's really the big thing, because I have I've certainly seen cases as well where somebody has detected the ransomware actors before they actually triggered the ransomware or before they actually deployed that. And they were able to disrupt parts of their operations, but then they weren't able to completely evict them. And, and they still end up, you know, dealing with some some subset of their data encrypted or some subset of the uh, data being exfilled out to their infrastructure. So really, you know, it's all very well documented. There's tons and tons of resources out there for how to defend against these threats. There's there's tons of, of good capabilities. I think any any decent MDR provider should be able to defend against this uh, with no problem. So do something about it, but it's not hopeless. It's not, 
you know, we, we always hear about this very sophisticated threat actors, you know, conducting these, these attacks and they're not always that sophisticated, right? They're sometimes just kind of bumbling, you know, the equivalent of a junior pen tester, right? That, uh, you know, using the same tools and, and techniques that any pen testing firm would use. So there's work to be done there. And I think we can do better as an industry defending against it. And we just all got to, uh, to get out there and, and get it done. Uh, this is my last question. The one I ask of everybody on the show, it can be as wide or as narrow as you want. Do you have any predictions for the future? I think um, I'll, I'll steal another one. And this is another one that I was talking about with Adrian, but I think he's right. I think this is going to continue to evolve and I don't know how, but I think that uh, the extortion model, you know, there's too much money in this, in this ecosystem for these people to just kind of pack it up and go away. So I think as, as, backups and backup solutions and business continuity solutions have become more ubiquitous and and as people have gotten better at defending against that component of the attack i think we're going to see more and more extortion types types of attacks and i think we're going to see more innovation from from threat actors to try to find new ways to extort money out of people and i i wouldn't you know i'm not bold enough to make a specific prediction as to how they're going to do that but i i do think that that's that's probably what's coming next is they're going to, you know, they're not going to say like, well, it's a good run while it lasted and <laughs> let's, let's pack it up and go home. They want more camouflage Lamborghinis and they're going to find ways to, uh, <laughs> to, uh, to continue to extract money out of, out of legitimate businesses. So that's, I think that probably as more and more folks move to cloud, I think they're probably going to be trying to find ways to, to go into these new environments and make sure that they're not, you know, going out of business just because everybody's upgraded from, you know, Microsoft Exchange to Office 365, right? They're going to find ways to to target these other environments and and find ways to make their evolve their tactics and continue to make money. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Paul. It was great talking to you, and I learned a couple things, which uh, is my favorite part of doing this. Thanks for having me, man. Always a blast. Take care. Bye. And that concludes episode number twenty nine of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics or guests, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.